Hello and welcome to the Serial Talker Podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom, and this is Episode 5 of our lengthy series on the Silk Road, the dark web marketplace that Ross Ulbricht started in 2011. It's a fascinating story. If you haven't listened to the other four, make sure you start from the beginning, listen to all four, and the investigation is really heating up. The feds are hot on the trail of Dread Pirate Roberts. He's still completely in the clouds about this secretive sneaky sting operation that undercover agent Knob has erected. Dread Pirate Roberts is getting very cocky. He's ordering hits on business associates. He's got a tie-up with the Hells Angels. The guy has gone way off the deep end. Enough of my blabbing. Let's get back to the story. Ross and Alex had become friends at the new house. Some nights, they'd watch King of the Hill together, which reminded Ross of home, as it was a satire of a suburban Texas family, like his own. Eventually, Alex met that family when they all visited for a weekend. Ross's parents seemed like nice folks who had raised a nice son. Settling into his room, Ross bought a few things to make life more comfortable, a lamp, a white leather couch from a garage sale, a standing desk for his Samsung. Online, however, things were less settled. Across the country, Force, the DEA agent, was hoping to capitalize on DPR's difficulties. He told DPR about Kevin, a supposed source of counterintelligence on the growing Silk Road investigation. Knob explained that, like all good cartel-affiliated players, he had a guy on the inside, a dirty Department of Justice employee on his payroll. Kevin, of course, was Force himself, and he had a lot of valuable information for DPR. Force told his supervisors that this informant game would make Knob seem omniscient and therefore more trusted. Citing Kevin, Knob fed DPR intel and predicted busts of Silk Road users and vendors. Things were getting dicey out there, Knob said. He pressed DPR on the need for a 30 seconds flat escape plan, suggesting various itineraries. Dread, can you explain to me why you chose this route? Knob, Algeria does not extradite to the U.S., and you don't have to take a plane out of your mother country. Ross had, in fact, taken some preparatory steps. He flew to Dominica, a tiny tax haven island in the Caribbean, and started an application for economic citizenship. He tried to cultivate successors in case flight became necessary. DPR had created a special forum called Staff Chat for his elite admins, including Batman 73, Inigo, and a newcomer called Cirrus. DPR told his admins how the pressure was getting to him, how he wanted time away. Even amid the rising chaos swirling around Silk Road, DPR started taking days off, leaving daily operations to his lieutenants. Ross spent a weekend with his old flame, Julia, a free-spirited and sensual young photographer he'd met at a drum circle in grad school. She flew in from Austin, and it felt like old times for the two of them, but also different. Ross still lived frugally in the Glen Park house, wore a faded red sweater all the time, and cooked his paleo diet. 
but he seemed happier. They had lots of sex, went dancing, and roamed the city, ending up one day on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific. In the distance, the Golden Gate Bridge rose beneath the lifting fog, catching the sun. Julia looked gamely over her shoulder at Ross and decided it was a good time to get topless. She rolled down her yellow sundress, and Ross took photos. She didn't care when a couple of hikers stumbled onto their softcore pictorial. Ross stopped shooting, and they ran off together, giggling, back toward the city. Ross started spending more time with his housemates. One day, he went to a nearby park with the girl who lived across the hall and hung out on the grass with her and her two long-haired chihuahuas. Marring the greenery, Ross noticed, was a piece of blue plastic stuck in a tree. A dedicated anti-litter bug, Ross climbed up to retrieve it. Back at the house, he discovered he'd gotten a bad case of poison oak and needed plenty of calamine lotion for the spreading rash. He moped for days, still shirtless, but now bright red, standing out like a squad car's flasher against his white leather couch. The wheels of the federal government grind slowly, but exceedingly fine. As Ross had written in his diary in 2011, when Silk Road came to the attention of the U.S. Senate, he knew he had awakened the biggest force-wielding organization on the planet. Two years later, Chris Tarbell was lying on his bed at his home with his wife Sabrina cooking in the other room and his kids tearing around the house so loudly he had to turn up his phone to hear the name Ross Ulbrich. Tarbell was on a conference call with the U.S. attorney assigned to the case and an agent from Homeland Security Investigations named Jared Deryeganyan. Deryeganyan was stationed at the customs office in Chicago's O'Hare International Airport and had been finding retail-sized drug parcels in mail on foreign flights, all carefully wrapped with customer service slips and return addresses to studyabroad.com. This, Deryeganyan discovered, was a vendor on a thing called Silk Road. Deryeganyan familiarized himself with the site and learned Silk Road well enough to bust a low-level admin named Cirrus and persuade her to cooperate, allowing him to take over her account. Now, Cirrus was rising through the ranks, becoming a trusted insider. Tarbell invited Deryeganyan to New York to work with CY2. Another new agent from the IRS, Gary Alford, had joined the conversation that day. As it happened, he'd been in Tarbell's war room earlier. Alford and the U.S. attorney were working on a separate Bitcoin case, and he'd taken a quick look at the chart. Oh, that's funny, Alford said. I had a lead in San Francisco, he told the team. I'll look it up. He looked it up and then explained to everyone what he'd found. Some months earlier, Alfred had figured that whoever had started Silk Road had tried to drum up interest on regular websites with like-minded audiences. He searched for Tor URLs around the time of the site's first appearance and found a mention in a Shumery.org forum in January 2011, days after the Silk Road launch. A user named Altoid talked up this exciting new service that claims to allow you to buy and sell anything online anonymously. Googling elsewhere on the username Altoid revealed a question about database programming, asking, 
How do I connect to a Tor Hidden service? The email listed was rossolbrick at gmail.com. A minute later, that user changed the alias to Frosty. The IRS didn't know what any of this meant, so that's where it ended. The info sat in a case file until dumb luck put Alfred in Tarbell's lab, whose wall was a map where all roads led to Frosty. Der Yegingan ran the name Ross Ulbrich through the federal database and found the Homeland Security report on Ross's fake IDs. A quick search for his last known address showed that he had lived half a block away from Cafe Luna, the San Francisco node on his chart, the site where an administrator had logged in to the Silk Road VPN. Tarbell was ecstatic. Finally, here was the missing piece, the end of the digital trail. Tarbell thought it was funny that these clues were sitting out in the open. In the end, one of the best law enforcement tools was Google. It seemed clear that Ross had no idea Silk Road would become such a success and was careless early on. And in the era of informational perpetuity, you only have to be careless once. A quick tour through Ross's social media presence revealed a digital portrait with an incredible likeness to Dread Pirate Roberts. His LinkedIn profile was full of the same libertarian rhetoric. On YouTube, he'd favorited videos from the Mises Institute, the political touchstone beloved by DPR. On Google+, where his profile described him as spunky, funky, not so chunky, he asked, Anyone know someone that works for UPS, FedEx, or DHL? In the lab, Kiernan found code on the Silk Road server that matched lines posted by Ross on Stack Overflow. Tarbell told his department supervisor the next day, We found the bastard. They put in a request to the surveillance team to send two agents to San Francisco to get eyes on Ross. They watched him in that house he shared with Alex, working late on encrypted wireless. Sometimes he headed out with his laptop, like practically everyone else in San Francisco, and sat at a cafe table, drinking coffee, banging away on his laptop. An electronic wiretap on Ross's email would require a court order, but at that point there wasn't probable cause to search the account, so they decided to use the physical surveillance to see if they could line up Ross's internet usage with DPR's activity on Silk Road. The activity matched. DPR and Ross were in lockstep. Every time Ross turned on his computer, DPR logged on to Silk Road. When he closed it, DPR logged out. Over weeks, the pattern was consistent. At his house, in cafes, in the morning or late evening, Ross and DPR were electronically aligned. When DPR would say he was taking the afternoon off, physical surveillance would watch Ross going to the park with his housemate and her chihuahuas, lying on the grass and getting poison oak by climbing into a tree to pull some blue plastic from the branches. Tarbell started planning. This would be a complicated operation, seizing the site's bitcoins undetected, taking control of Silk Road, and placing FBI people abroad at the machine in Iceland and at another in France. Tarbell was also worried they might accidentally tip off Ross. 
He even wondered why Ross hadn't bolted already. Der Yegenyan, online as Cirrus, was in DPR's inner circle and knew that he was feeling extreme pressure. Tarbell thought Ross was clearly smart enough to get out while he could. In fact, Force, as Knob, was actively encouraging DPR to flee. Force had been sidelined, but his final play was to convince the digital kingpin to meet him at some airport under the guise of providing safe passage and take him into custody. To juice DPR's flight instinct, Force pointed out that were he to be caught, prison would not be a safe place. Knob, you are like one of my family, but I have to tell you that I have had several people killed who were sent to jail. It's very easy and cheap. But Ross wasn't going anywhere. His hubris had only grown based on his belief in Tor and his own intellect. He thought he was invincible. Even as warning signs flashed all around him and the feds loomed on the horizon, Ross told a potential employee that they would never get caught. Realistically, he said, the only way for them to prove anything would be for them to watch you log in and do your work. On the evening of September 28th, the FBI's surveillance team watched DPR log off as Ross stopped working, closed his computer, left the house with his housemates, and headed for the beach. It looked like a brochure for San Francisco living, a group of kids sitting around a campfire at Ocean Beach beneath a crescent moon, listening to their friend Ross play his djembe. This was the first weekend of Indian summer, that glorious time in San Francisco when everyone ventures outside and you can sit in the sand within sight of Golden Gate Park and listen to the dark waves crash on the shore. Alex opened champagne, and Ross drank tecates and drummed along with a dude playing Wonderwall on a guitar in the distance. Toward midnight, the soiree was interrupted by three cops who told them to kill their fire. No bonfires after eleven, they said. The group brought the party back to their house in Glen Park, drinking on the balcony. The guys in the next house over were on their balcony too, sharing some sangria and passed a glass to Ross. He picked up Clementine, one of his housemate's chihuahuas, and cradled her in his scarf like a baby in a sling, toting her around while still drinking. It was the only time Alex ever saw Ross drunk. They took the party inside and jammed, with Alex on the piano, Ross knocking his djembe, and some other friends singing. The music settled into a hypnotically repeating melody, as late-night jams do, until everyone drifted back to their rooms or out the door. Online, Ross's stewardship of Silk Road was off-balance. He recorded his troubles in his log. Law enforcement was trying to infiltrate the forums. Some big vendors were getting busted. He was hemorrhaging money, starting with a government seizure of $2 million that May from Mt. Gox, the world's biggest Bitcoin exchange, where some key Silk Road accounts were held. Unrelated, Red and White convinced Ross to give him $500,000 and then disappeared. Even his friend Knob was still making veiled threats about how easy he would be to kill in jail. Amid the chaos... DPR did talk to Libertas, one of his most trusted admins, 
about taking over Silk Road in case of emergency, but he never gave him server access. As he tried to keep his fingers in the dike, DPR confided his worries to Cirrus, who by the end of September was briefing a massive FBI team in San Francisco, alongside Tarbell and Kiernan, on the looming arrest of Ross Ulbrich. If Ross knew the noose was tightening, he didn't show it. In the days after the Ocean Beach party, he worked at his standing desk and called Julia in Austin, telling her he was going to visit in November. She sent him sultry photos, naked and dancing, as a preview. That Monday night, Ross wrote in his diary, had revelation about the need to eat well, get good sleep and meditate, so I can stay positive and productive. The dining room of the San Francisco airport Marriott was nearly empty at 6 a.m. on Tuesday, October 1, 2013, when Tarbell met Kiernan and Duryeganyan for another mediocre breakfast. Tarbell hadn't slept much since arriving in San Francisco two days earlier. He and his New York team were edgy, having been in position waiting on the right moment. There was, as usual, a bureaucratic complication. Silk Road was Tarbell's case, but he and CY2 were visitors at the pleasure of the San Francisco FBI office, and it was their assistant special agent in charge who had, as cops say, designed the arrest. In classic form, the local FBI wanted to mount a dramatic raid on Ross's house. Tarbell didn't like this idea. He was worried about repeating the mistake made during the first big cybercrime case, when they arrested a hacktivist named Jeremy Hammond in Chicago. There, a SWAT team charged into Hammond's apartment, throwing flash grenades, immediately alerting Hammond in the back room, who shut the lid on his laptop, encrypting it forever. This kind of operation didn't need SWAT, Tarbell thought. It required finesse. To prosecute a cybercrime, you needed direct evidence, which centered around Ross's machine. Tarbell wanted to get Ross in medias race, with fingers on the keys, as they say in the trade. Tarbell had read in DPR's chats about how secure his system was, how one keystroke would erase it all. There was no margin for error. They needed complete surprise. Still, the assault strategy remained in place. Thank you for your input, the local FBI supervisor had told Tarbell. Now, here is the plan. There would be three SWAT teams, one for each floor of the house. They would hit at dawn, gaining fluid entry. They couldn't promise, but they would try to catch Ross while he was online. These are the fastest SWAT teams, the supervisor said. But it doesn't matter, Tarbell said. No one is fast enough. The arrest had been scheduled already, but Tarbell kept asking to delay so that they could catch Ross at one of his cafes. They'd seen him out working once, but didn't have assets in position. Tarbell was granted one delay, but that was it. Your equity is used up, the San Francisco chief said. No more favors. The SWAT assault was scheduled for 5 a.m. on Thursday. The entire tactical force, dozens of agents, had gathered at an FBI cybercrime facility an hour south in San Jose, prepping for their final assault.
Holy moly, this is getting really, really good. I hope you guys are enjoying listening to this as much as I am reading it. We have one more part left. Part six is coming up. It's been a long series, but I have been really enjoying reading it to you. So uh, make sure you tune in for episode six. And if you like this kind of podcast, by all means, please consider subscribing. If you would like to contribute to the production costs of this podcast, you could always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description of this podcast. If you have an intriguing true story you would like me to consider reading, please send it on. That email address is also in the description. And finally, if you think someone you know would enjoy these podcasts, please share The Serial Talker on your social media channels. I'd be much obliged. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you again in a week. Ciao for now. <laughs>